<laughs> On this episode of PNR Churchman, we're talking apologetics. And so ruling elders being out in the world really have the opportunity to engage with people at work, in the community, maybe in, in ways that teaching elders don't always have because we're often within the walls of the church. I know we do have to get out more. And so I have uh, two guests with us. One of them you're aware of, Matt Fender, ruling elder Matt Fender. How you doing, Matt? I am very well. Nice to see you today, George. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us again. So you are an attorney and what's your Presbyterian church? Uh, so I am a ruling elder at All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. That's in the James River Presbytery. And uh, we will significantly be hosting General Assembly in Richmond next year. I'm looking forward to seeing everyone there. Yes, definitely looking forward to that. Only a few hours away from me. And uh, Matt and I had a great episode. You should look it up on review and control. And it was just really good. You, many, many listeners recognize Matt from uh, different GA uh, committee, committee of commissioners stuff. Um, were you on RPR too? I was. I'm yeah. currently in. Just did the first year of a three-year term. Okay. Yeah, great. And and also um, many GA speeches and also some some presented some minority reports, if I remember correctly. Um, and then Brandon Robbins. And Brandon may be new to uh, to most people. He, I think Ike Reader keeps him under wraps there at BTS, very busy. But Brandon works for uh, Birmingham Theological Seminary. He's also a photographer, and I think he wears a lot of hats. And, and you're a ruling elder also, aren't you, Brandon? Yeah, I'm a ruling elder at Cross Creek Church in Evangel Presbytery. Um, so started out as a small church plant, you know, but, you know, one of those smaller community churches, you know, parish model. Great. And that's in Birmingham or outside of Birmingham? Where's that? Yeah, who— Hoover area outside of Birmingham. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. You, like I said, you two look like brothers. You both have the the beard, although Matt, uh, or though Matt's a little a little more professional looking. Um, Ouch. And you're you're a little more like every time. Every time. You, 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 we haven't even started talking apologetic methodologies, and you're already giving me a hard time. So yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you look like the artist. So you you are a, a professional photographer, and and uh, do amazing amazing work. So, um, so apologetics. The reason this came about was uh, on Matt and myself. The episode we did a month or two ago, uh, we had a whole segment that just went into apologetics, and I didn't include that in an episode because I said I think this would be a great conversation to have, and. Uh, so Matt teaches apologetics at his church, and we'll we'll let him uh, explain that. Obviously, being a lawyer, I'm sure that that sort of helps being able to think through things. And Brandon and I actually, I don't think I told Matt this, but we are in a, a doctor of ministry program at Birmingham Theological Seminary, and and this is the a demon program in apologetics. And so, as far as we know, it is the only demon program in apologetics that's offered. Uh, I don't think any of the other places offer one uh, with that kind of concentration. And so Brandon and I have been been doing this for two years. Um, but uh, I, I often feel like uh, I, I am not in the same league as Brandon. Brandon, you, you've actually done uh, debates, apologetic debates, and, and uh, you've helped actually help design the curriculum, which is interesting. So tell us a little bit about that, Brandon. Um, well, yeah, so... Like you want me to just give background in apologetics in general, kind of what? Yeah, do I, that. Yeah, my, do a background uh, in apologetics, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I was the the classic uh, converted 
post-college didn't really grow up in a Christian home. You know, we went to church, you know, holidays kind of scenario. And then when I started going to church, I actually started going to a PCA church outside of Atlanta and, and got into RC sprawl really quick and read his first book on classical apologetics, barely got through it, real technical. And, and, you know, at 22, 23 years old, I thought this is what the reform position is on apologetics because RC sprawls like the patron saint of all things reformed until I actually took a class in apologetics and Gershner, it was a video conference, video lecture thing. And Gershner was giving the lectures and I was reading uh, Richard Pratt's tiny little book on presuppositional apologetics. And I was listening to this and I thought, this Gershner guy's crazy. This can't be what reformed apologetics is supposed to be. And so then I decided I was definitely a presuppositionalist. I was going to follow, you know, Richard Pratt and, and, read all his stuff, all of Bonson's stuff, a lot of the Vantillian stuff, and thought, you know, I was diehard uh, Vantillian presuppositionalist uh, until I started taking a lot of philosophy classes, went back to school, started taking a lot of philosophy classes, and kept running up against a number of issues, and 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 then kind of morphed into what I call a modest foundationalist. We'll talk about this later. Uh, epistemology, but how that might relate to my methodology. And... You know, I've been kind of comfortable there. And, and so it's not being wishy-washy. It's just kind of a, a mediated position to some extent. What about um, your debates, though? Like, how did you, because you've... You... Yeah, and so I worked with a, a place called uh, Projects Resource Center for a while, like right before I finished seminary. And the local Alabama Atheist Society would want to put on different debates. And so I debated a couple of UAB philosophy professors you know, one on morality and another one on um, kind of the very nature of truth thing. And then I also had a separate debate. I team debated with uh, Dr. Steve Cowan, um, uh, the, the Atheist Society, on the resurrection, whether the resurrection was a historical event. Is that how you knew Steve? Event. Yeah, well, I, he used to work for ARC, too. So me and Steve met through oh. that ministry, you know, a long time ago. I mean, it would have been... right. So Steve, Steve Cowan taught uh, one of our classes, taught one of our classes at BTS, and he's the uh, the editor of uh, the Five Views on Apologetics book that um, yeah. that is out there, and and a yeah. number of other philosophy books uh, and apologetics books. So Matt, what what is your your background in apologetics? Because you were blowing me away when we had that conversation. That's what made me think we got to do this episode. Well, George, that's for kind of you to say. I uh, I'm nothing but an amateur. Um, my first real exposure to apologetics at all was um, I went to Virginia Tech in the fall of 1992. The uh. Campus Crusade chapter brought Josh McDowell to campus. Nice. And they did an amazing job marketing it. And uh, at one point, they filled up the basketball uh, stadium, Castle Coliseum, with undergraduates that were there to hear uh, Josh McDowell. And uh, it was pretty, pretty. And I, you know, I was, I was being impressed with, it, with him at the time. But later on, I started reading his books, thinking about what he had to say. And it just never really sort of rang true to me. And I was not—I was a Christian then, but I was not Reformed. I had not yet been exposed to the Reformed faith. That came a few years later when I stumbled into Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And then a few years after that in, uh, in law school, uh, especially the third year of law school, you kind of have time. And I, I started uh, doing some reading and, and really trying to dig into this a little more. Um, I talked to a guy that I knew there in town, and he gave me a John Frame book to read, which I found unsatisfying. And then I started reading a little Cornelius Van Til, and um, little, well, because Van Til's hard to read, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's 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 you know he he's is. a brilliant guy, but his writing I've always found to be a little bit obtuse. And then eventually, I found my way into uh, 
Greg Bonson's book on Van Til, which I recommend to anybody. Uh, if you want to understand Van Til, you need to read that book because he, he, he presents it very, very clearly. Um, Greg Bonson's on my list of people to look up uh, in glory because I, I admire him a lot for his, his clear and cogent thinking. So I really started digging into this. One, one of the big things that informs my view of apologetics, of course, is a Calvinist soteriology. You know, it seems like a lot of the, the classical and evidentiary-based apologetics seems to be grounded in the idea that we're going to talk people into heaven. And ultimately, look, the Lord has not regenerated your heart, right? If you've not been effectually called, there's nothing I could say to you that's going to make you a true believer. So I think I have to approach it with that in mind, right? And I think also a lot of the, it seems to me a lot of the apologetic stuff that gets thrown around, particularly on the evidentiary side, seems to be aimed at trying to make believers feel good about themselves, you know, whenever I, I hear somebody give a speech and say, start talking about how many copies of the New Testament are extant in Greek manuscripts, and if you pile them up, they'd be as tall as a skyscraper, and there's all this accuracy between them. And that seems like it's designed to sort of make people say, yeah, what I already believe is right. But I've never seen that used effectively to persuade the skeptic. And, and I just say this as well. Part of the reason I'm so heavily drawn to the—and and look, I, I think— you know, do apologetics however you want to do it. Whatever it works for you, whatever is defending the faith, whatever is persuading people, you know, this is not like a, you know, either or. It's both and. It's whatever, you know, is effective, you know, for you. But I, I find the apology... Um, it's very, it's very postmodern of you, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's funny, funny you should say that because that's what I find so appealing about presuppositionalism is I feel like it is apologetics for the postmodern age, right? It's something that, that, that we saw emerge at the beginning of the 20th century, because what we saw was for the first time we had large numbers of agnostics and atheists. You know, secular materialism, modernism was in the ascendancy. You know, if you backed that up pre-enlightenment and you were walking around talking to people on the street, you weren't going to meet people who said they didn't believe in God. Everybody believed in some, something about God. You know, they, they were acknowledging the transcendental in some way. Um, what we're, I think, presuppositional apologetics really comes to its own is that transcendental argument for God, right? It's point, pointing out the inconsistencies that the person who claims not to believe in the transcendental or the, what you might call the supernatural is really acting on a lot of unfounded assumptions. So, so let, let, we're going to get into that. I, so what, um, but you obviously have, have studied this or trained, self-trained in it. You're a lawyer. And I, I do, I, I do mean that that is helpful. You know how to develop an argument. And of course, you know, one of the, the, the main verses that we go to for apologetics, but I think there's actually probably better places in Scripture, but is is First Peter 3, and I'll just read that for, for our listeners. I'm going to read from 14 to 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then here's what's usually quoted. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And usually that part's left off. Yes. Uh, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so w what I always like about that is there's there's an implicit sort of hostility toward what we're going to share. But we're standing on truth and we're standing on honoring Christ. And so we are going to we are going to defend the faith. Um, but in a dare I say winsome way, I see I, I threw it in there. Uh, in, in a way that is um, with, with humility, because we know what we've been saved from. Uh, my, my own story uh, in apologetics is I, I was an engineer. So again, engineers are, are science-based, also fairly rational or very rational. And and um, 
I was just taken aback by the the rationality of of the Christian faith that there were good arguments for what we believe, and it was really through like Amazon dot com forums. I don't know if they still exist, chat rooms and stuff, and they used to be like chat rooms for different subjects. And I would get in the religion one and the Christianity one, and I would debate people, and really help me understand what others thought. And and I'd be up till all hours of the night doing this and. Um, it taught me how to answer arguments and, but what it also taught me was kind of what you were talking about, Matt, was you're not going to talk anyone into, into heaven. And for a lot of our arguments there, there's counter arguments. And then we have to weigh the arguments and all that. And that's why when also when presuppositional apologetics, uh, was opened up to me through seminary and, and other things, I was, uh, I was taken back by it. I was like, wow, this is this is uh is very helpful it's a it it really is a f- more fully orbed way for why people believe what they believe or don't believe and yet i've often seen you know a lot of presuppositionalists re- swing so far to that side that they don't even care about answering people's objections anymore it's almost like they're not hearing the objections and so what i want to do now is uh, kind of go into maybe talk the th- maybe talk three schools of apologetics and if you think that we ought to bring in a fourth just to explain it to people and it sounds like there's a heavy presuppositional uh, uh, agreement among the three of us and so maybe the conversation will turn there but who wants to explain like the, what what people typically think of apologetics is cl- is classical apologetics. And then there's also evidentiary apologetics or an evidentialist. So uh, who, who can explain classical apologetics to us? Well, Which I mean, one you guys? I mean it, unless Matt wants to or he, he can add to it. I mean, the, the purest form of classical apologetics from a reform perspective. Let, I mean, let's let's not build the straw man of, of the classical guys that deny Calvinistic soteriology because they're 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 evidentialists and classical guys that that believe the same thing. You can't argue anybody into heaven. You can't change somebody from unregenerate to regenerate. You know, but so so let's just use R.C. Sproul. He didn't believe that you could argue anybody into heaven, but so so R.C. Sproul is like the most pure. He was like an extreme rationalist, so he would get complaints from everybody, like like even other classical guys, because he's just almost he was almost like too pure of a rationalist. And he had what you might even call, usually a classical apologetics is a two-step process, arguments for God's existence, and then arguments for the resurrection, you know, and, and, and therefore you get an argument for scripture maybe comes downstream from that, which is kind of how R.C. But R.C. So, so the, the point is, so, so the point linear. of that is just for listeners, the, two, the two-step method is first you establish god's existence but of course that's not good enough for salvation so then you you establish christianity's truthfulness yeah but but rc Sproul in particular he started kind of with epistemology he started with you must assume if we're even having a conversation if we're even on this podcast and we're communicating with each other that there's at least some semblance of the ability of of language to communicate the same thing to you as it does to me. And there's got to be some sense of the basic reliability of sense perception, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of causation, and the law of excluded middle. If I make a statement, 
it's either true or false. It can't be both true or both false at the same time. And so he would move directly from what he would call undeniable, pure, basic beliefs like that, that you, that you have to assume in order to just even drive down the road. And, and he'd move directly from that to a moral argument because it's either true that you can beat an innocent child for the fun of it, or it's not right. You know, cause that, that assumes the law of non-contradiction and it assumes the law of the excluded middle and excludes, um, all of those other aspects of, of, of his basic pure foundationalist epistemology. And so then he would make that argument for morality and then he'd move on to some argument for the resurrection. So that's like a pure linear, you know, logical progression argument that, that sounds very partisan, you know, and, and RC was probably within the reform circles, him and Boyce would have been the most consistent at trying to use that methodology described that way. Matt, what would you add to explaining classical apologetics? Well, I think what Brandon described is right. I mean, I understand it as basically a two-piece approach where you start with kind of a cosmological argument for God that's it's kind of like the impossibility of the contrary sort of, sort of argument often, although there's variations on it. And then once you've established you know, that there's got to be a God, then you sort of say, well, how can we know him? And you start making this kind of evidentiary-sounding argument for why the Bible is, is true. Um, and but you know the way Brandon described it, I mean, there's a number of things of the approach he just described that had in common with the presuppositional approach, right? Dealing heavily with epistemology, and um, that you know certain things simply must be true. Uh, but I think that the difference there is you're taking on the burden of proving God, whereas a presuppositionalist would never do that because we don't concede the not God proposition because there is no neutrality. Um, so I right. think that's a fundamental difference. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's good. I think also more simply for our listeners is is the classical approach starts with rationality, as as Brandon kind of highlighted. And so there's this: there must be a god because every every effect has to have a cause, and and so it can't go back to an infinite regress. And that's where we get things like the cosmological argument or the problem of evil. So there's there's this rational reasoned basis to reason to the best explanation as God for what we see. But once again, you got to then make a leap between a God and then, and then there being Jesus. Um, of course, I, I guess that's, that also is a Thomistic approach. Would it not be like Thomas's uh, Aquinas's five proofs and, and some of other, the way he reasoned about the existence of God or reason itself. Yeah. It's, it's at least fairly consistent. I mean, there's differences, you know, but yeah, but you know right he, he didn't and so that you know what, what go, ahead, go ahead. ahead well i was just saying he, he didn't well say is talk about causality in the sense of what's my cause of of having existence now like, like there has to be something sustaining me you know as opposed to like you know everybody uses the kalam cosmological argument is the popular one that that all the, yeah. the diehard right. Classical guys used to that, which is a slightly different version. Right. Right, right. And so my own story is, uh, it's funny you mentioned Josh McDowell, uh, Matt, because that was, that was really the book. It was, it was more than a carpenter. And uh, that was really compelling to me. And then from there, I would, I was, I did a lot of R.C. Sproul. I did a lot of Ravi Zacharias, um, obviously. 
before anything was known about Robbie. So, <laughs> so I feel I hate that you always have to like make a qualifier there. But like many of us listened to a lot of Robbie before all that came out about him. And um, so how does the classical approach, which uses more like reason and logic, it's very Aristotelian. Um, what, what's the difference between that and an evidentiary or evidentialist approach? Matt, you want to take that one? Yeah. So, I mean, what I know about the evidentiary approach, and I've certainly heard people use it. Um, if I think if you buy evidence that demands a verdict, that's probably the what I think of as the you know pure form of it, is essentially to say, hey, gosh, the Bible is true, and I can prove to you it's true. And then there's kind of two ways they go. One is to show that there are historical evidences, external biblical references that, that corroborate the facts of the Bible, like we're going to read Josephus and we're going to say that, you know, what he says is in line with what the Bible says was happening at the same time, right? Um, or, or look at other sort of ancient Near East historical sources. And then there's also the, the sort of proving the integrity of the Bible approach, where they sort of talk about the process of being canonized and, you know, the the comparison of the different manuscripts. And they have, they're, they have so much in common. There's very few discrepancies. And, oh, look, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and that shows this was older than we thought it was. And it's just kind of like, you know, kind of using physical evidence or, you know, historical sources, um, literature to show that the Bible is true and reliable. Um, at least that's how I hear it usually presented. Uh, Brandon, do you agree with that? Yeah, it, it's usually, you know, like Habermas is popular. He does it a little bit differently, but he would be an evidentialist where he is different than a classical guy where a traditional classical apologetics, again, is two or three step approach, either starting with rationality, then God's existence, then Jesus. Habermas says, I don't even need the first step. If I show that there's reasons to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, then God must exist because my premise is God rose Jesus from the dead. And so he just starts with what he calls a, a minimal facts argument for the resurrection. He doesn't do some of the things that Matt was talking about when it comes to just like, he just doesn't even worry about even general reliability. He just looks at the most basic reliability. Here are some facts that even the most liberal historical scholars would agree is actually in scripture, like the women found the empty tomb. Well, no one would have made that up because women couldn't even testify. So therefore that probably actually happened, right? You know, um, post-mortem appearances, or at least people that testify that there's post-mortem appearances, they don't deny that. Uh, he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, you know, so he uses all these kind of minimal facts and then he goes, then he looks at all the possible answers to that. You know, the swoon theory, the the uh, the Roman soldiers hold, hid the body, all of those kind of things and try to show that the best answer that's not, you know, ad hoc, you know, and you don't have to keep changing your theory. It's just one theory that kind of has the exploratory scope and the exploratory power to deal with all the data in the New Testament is that God rose Jesus from the dead. That that's the best single answer. And that's kind of his whole approach is just, uh, Mike Lacona had, has written extensively on this from just a pure historian perspective. And that's kind of what they do is just, just from pure history, the argument is greater that Jesus rose from the dead than it is not. And and so they, they, they argue purely yeah. from a historical perspective. So again, for... For for listeners, these two methods are probably what you're more familiar with. If you're not, if you've never heard of Van Til or presuppositionalism, it's rational arguments for the existence of God is is more of a classical approach. Evidential or or historic evidences fall under an evidentiary method. But I, I would say most 
most people do that naturally, right? Try to defend the scriptures or defend uh, the rationality of it on their own. What I found is congregants and Christians love this stuff. And it is so helpful to believers to, it's almost like we believe and then we're so excited to see it make sense, you know? <laughs> and um, I mean, have you found that? Have you found like, like, you know, I mean, everybody loves an Easter sermon that like goes through the evidences for the resurrection, you know, and I don't do that every year. I only do that, you know, every few years maybe because I'm, I just think there's more there to it. But, but it's almost like people can leave with some sec like additional security in their belief. Do you know what I'm talking about? I certainly have heard it used that way. Um, I, I don't tend to favor it because I, even with believers, because I don't want you to believe because some historian said so. You believe because your Bible's true. And that, and that's the only evidence you need, right? The Bible is true and the Bible says so. And there's plenty of, of people out there that think the Bible's not true. There's plenty of, of people that are saying all sorts of things that, to contradict Christianity. And so the basis of your knowledge, the basis of your worldview, the basis of your understanding of yourself and God and everything around you is that the Bible is true. And anything that contradicts that is necessarily false. And that's how you need to live your life. That's intellectual loyalty to Christ. That's taking every thought captive. I, I, have a, I, I wish I had a, a pure like classical guy here to talk to you about, like to ask you about circularity of arguments and stuff. But Brandon, what, what are some of your thoughts on what Matt said? And... Um, well, I, I, I mean, have to, you seen that in the life of congregants? Yeah. And, and part of the reasons why I, I repel back from both sides is the average congregant doesn't understand Ventilian presuppositional apologetics. Whatever, would both of you agree with that? Like how many people in sure. your congregations have a real solid understanding of grounding their overall beliefs in, in a Ventilian and then just do the PCA in general. Matt's congregation is a very high percentage in Matt's congregation because he teaches it. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I think quite a few because it's been my goal over the last several years to get it across. Um, I but, teach it but, to our high school. But, but my, my, my daughter could do it. And she's in ninth grade. By and large, it, 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 it's probably a little – because most Vantillians disagree with each other. Like, Frame doesn't think Bonson understood Vantillian Vantil at all. And, and then – uh, you know, Paul Helm doesn't think Frame or Bonson really understand how to articulate their view philosophically at all, you know. And so anyway, there, there's always a lot going back and forth. But anyway, I I just think that there's there, there's is more of a middle road in which, you know, kind of my thought is that that scripture tells us certain about certain things about every human being. Every human being is created in the image of God and and actually has. We believe as Christians that even if they want to suppress that truth and our unrighteousness and not give thanks to God, that 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 essence, that seed of religion, or what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, that that seed of religion is inside every human being, whether they're ultimately going to reject it or not. And so, the apologist is more like the parable of the sower. As we go around sharing the gospel, we are throwing seed everywhere because we have no idea what kind of soil it is. And when we engage the apologetic endeavor, we are, we are looking for those in whom God is going to regenerate or, or has regenerated. We are looking for that good soil. And so as we engage in arguments from any perspective, we're tilling up the ground until, ah, we found the one or we found, the, you know, those whom God is calling to himself, you know, and, and we utilize 
kind of that insider information that scripture gives us, right? That's why the moral argument is almost one of the most compelling. Why? Because the Gentiles who don't know the law, don't have the law, actually have the laws written on their hearts, right? It's evident within them whenever they do the law. They actually have a conscience. Mm -hmm. They have that sense of the divine. And that's why the moral argument's effective. It's because they know there are moral oughts, right? And, and so that's why we use it. I, we, I use it because Scripture says so. Scripture says that that's the natural condition. Now, just because they have moral oughts doesn't mean that they're going to be changed, right? That doesn't mean they're going to be converted. I, I'm more of a, a reformed C.S. Lewis internalist version of Alvin Plantiga. Everybody just go look up all those names and try to put all those guys in a blender and you know, somehow you get the version that I exist in. Well, I mean, I, that, that it is important. So there's, there's more than just three approaches. I mean, there's what's called the reformed approach. You would think that presuppositionalism would be that, but well, there the is reformed a you know, epistemology. Yeah. In, in its purest form, doesn't even want to use arguments, right? They, they just kind of. Right. God revealed himself in creation. And all you have to do is put that person in the right situation whether that's the preaching of the gospel experientially or yeah you know but I, but i think for most of us the certainty that we have for christianity is metaphysical and existential it's not epistemological like like epistemology doesn't necessarily provide us with certainty it's like hey you know vantillian approach we have this perfect set of no, a noetic web of beliefs that's perfectly consistent and we have a found we have a a reason to believe our approach to the world because it's consistent because you have to have God has to exist in order for there to be rationality and it all works. But maybe that whole thing is wrong. Well, the reason we know it's not wrong is because of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's an existential thing, right? That we actually experience. And if we're right, yeah, and that's very planning. A two. Well, yeah. Yeah. But and if we're right, there's no way that someone's going to be able to argue us out of the kingdom of God, you know, and, and, and that's where so, we really get that certainty. But, no, this is this is Frame's problem with um, Paul Helm because Paul Helm's probably one of the, you know, he's an academic philosopher who's reformed, and he wrote, you know, kind of the dissertation on a coherentist epistemology, and and but but Frame's problem with him is well, he's just using rational ra rationalization of a different sort, you know, he's trying to rationally prove God's existence from a Vantillian perspective, which which that's not true Vantillianism. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's mm. you know, so there's nuance here that yeah. it's not to discuss in an hour and a half right. podcast. <laughs> well, what I want to do is jump into what presuppositionalism is because some people are, aren't going to know. And Brandon kind of Brandon's last uh, little speech there like had tentacles into all of it, I think. Yeah. And so Matt, I'll let you explain particularly presuppositionalism. But as I'll as I'll set it up. It, it's almost as if cultural apologists today are just called presuppositionalists because they're they're real good at like debunking cultural narratives. But that's not what presuppositionalism is at its core. Um, I don't know who's dinging that is, but maybe you could turn them off those notifications. Uh, and uh, you know, when you think of like Francis Schaeffer or Tim Keller. I mean, they they would consider themselves, or people would consider them presuppositional apologetic uh, apologists, but yet not not very Vantillian in, in in some aspects. So, Matt, give us a a one hundred and one. 
on presuppositional apologetics. Well, thanks, George. Happy to. And I, it's funny, I've um, this year I've been trying to read a little Francis Schaeffer because I just wanted to better understand him. And um, he he seems very, he's very focused on culture, but he also, in my view, just concedes way too much from what, from what a Vantillian would, would, would say. And um, I, I don't know enough to talk a ton about that, but I, I don't, I don't want to put him in that, I mean, maybe broadly presuppositional, but um, the way I'm going to lay it out, it might, let me say this, I, I've talked to a lot of guys over the years who've been to seminary and say, oh yeah, you know, they said something about Ventil. I thought that was really complicated. I never really do much with it. And my, my goal when I, when I teach this stuff, which I do probably once a year or so to either the adults or the kids. And um, I recently did a six week series for our adult class. That's up on sermon audio. If anybody wants to hear it along with the uh, PowerPoint slides. And my goal is presuppositional apologetics for the person in the pew, right? That I, I think this is really simple and I think anybody can do it. I think that every single person sitting in the pews at my church who's, you know, over the age of 12 should be able to do, do this argument, do this apologetic. And I, and I particularly want the kids that are going off to college to have it in their toolbox, to be able to do it off the top of their head. So when that leftist Marxist professor challenges them, they can just take them apart. And I think absolutely anybody can. And part part of what's, I mean, uh, let, let, yes, for a one-on-one, let me, let me take it back. First of all, what's a presupposition? A presupposition is a fundamental belief about the world, the way the world works, that's at the core of your network of beliefs, right? It's, it's one of the basic assumptions by which you live your life. We might not want to call it an assumption, but it's a, it's a belief anyway. And then your presuppositions collectively as a network form your worldview. And we hear a lot about worldviews these days. Al Mohler gets on the you know, internet every morning and talks about the news and events from a Christian worldview. And he's right. You know, that it's how we interpret the world is a function of our presuppositions and our worldviews. You know, and we can talk about really basic presuppositions, things like the reliability of memory, um, that your memories are actually things that happen to you as opposed to being artificially implanted there, or the consistency of the physical world, you know, that gravity is going to work the same way tomorrow that it works now. Um, the fact that we can, that our reason is reliable, that the, the things that Brandon was talking about earlier, uh, like the impossibility of the contra contrary and the excluded middle, and you know, the, the, if, if, if this is true, the opposite must not be true, um, that we can string together an argument and, and reach a reliable conclusion, all of that stuff, those are all basic presuppositions that we all make all, all the time, right? And so as a believer, my basic presupposition is that the Bible is true. Now, why do I believe that? Well, I believe that because it was revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. So that is indeed a metaphysical, transcendental uh, belief, right? I don't deny the transcendental. I embrace the transcendental. And what do I mean by transcendental? Well, just something that you believe that you can't prove by science, if you want to put it simply. Um, so we absolutely have a basic core transcendental presupposition, and we readily concede that. When I'm talking to an unbeliever, hey, no, look, I, I believe the Bible's true, and that's my philosopher's stone. That's my one true thing from which everything proceeds, and I readily concede that. And understand you don't hold that presupposition, sir. So let's talk about that. And then what we do, what, what is so compelling about presuppositional apologetics is we go on offense, right? Typically with apologetics, we're on defense. We're standing there and defending the existence of God or defending the truth of Scripture. Well, as a presuppositionalist, I, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying, well, sir, let's talk about what you believe. And my goal is threefold. It is to expose the presuppositions of the unbeliever, compare and contrast them with those of the believer, and expose the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. And, you know, the way we typically do that, there's a, some different things you can do, but the main way is what's called the transcendental argument for God. And how do we make a transcendental argument for God? Well, we start by taking any element of knowledge whatsoever. What is something that you, unbeliever, believe? 
And then we look at the conditions that have to be true in order for that to be a meaningful statement. An um, example I use in class sometimes is the, the cheeseburger. You know, you're, you're about to take a bite out of a cheeseburger. And you're doing so with the belief that the cheeseburger is going to taste good and it's going to be nourishing um, and helpful for your body. And it's going to be an overall pleasant experience to eat the cheeseburger. Well, why do you think that? Well, you think that because you've got memories of prior cheeseburgers that you've eaten that tasted good and were nourishing and didn't make you sick. Um, and, th and therefore, you're relying upon those memories, which you're assuming to be true. You're assuming that you're actually sitting there in the room looking at the cheeseburger and not strapped into the matrix somewhere. Um, and, there, and there's all this stuff that sort of swirls around to make that happen. But when you start getting into that stuff, and you start talking about those kind of like heavy epistemological things, you start losing people. But what I find is incredibly effective, and I agree with Brandon alluded to this earlier, is arguing for morality. So I think the transcendental argument made by arguing for morality is the silver bullet. It's the area in your quiver that works on everybody all the time. Because everybody has moral maxims, right? Everybody makes odd statements. Everybody walking around out there says stuff is right and wrong. And oddly, the people who deny God seem to be the ones who are screaming the loudest about things being right and wrong. Right. Just, you know, go go on Twitter. And when I when I teach this, I, I, I take random tweets off the, you know, the Internet and put them up and we, you know, rebut them. But, you know, whatever the moral statement that somebody is making is and it's, you know, it's immoral to not let trans children mutilate themselves or or maybe it's something that we might agree with, which saying, hey, it, it's immoral to pollute the river. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is, you say, OK, sir, well, I see that you're, you're making this moral statement. What is the basis of that statement? Where does it where does it come from, right? And is that just what you think? Is that just your opinion, or do you have some external authority that you can appeal to? And they're going to have to go one way or the other, right? And if they say if they appeal to some external authority, well, what are some some things they can appeal to, right? Well, they might say, well, that's just what most of society has agreed because that's the law. Well, th that's not exactly a moral argument, right? We can all point to all kinds of immoral laws. You know, say, oh, gosh, well, it used to be legal to have, you know, chattel slavery. It used to be legal to rape your wife. Um, did, that, did that make it moral just because that's what the civil law said? Well, no, of course not. Right. So that's that's not any kind of argument. Um, and really what you're going to come to pretty quickly is they're either going to the person you're speaking to will either make a transcendental appeal to God or something like God, or it's just my opinion. And you can usually get there within a few questions. And once it's just your opinion, well, why am I bound by your opinion on morality? Right. And from there, we pretty much get down to amorality. There is no morality pretty quickly. And nobody walks around thinking there is no morality. Right. Everybody has got these strong moral beliefs by which they live their lives. And by exposing that there's nothing underpinning them, we can pretty quickly um, demonstrate that you're talking to somebody who's walking around with an inconsistent worldview that is grounded on nothing other than their own emotions. And I'll stop there because I've been talking for a while. Brandon, jump in when it, jump in on that. Yeah, well, I mean, just uh, usually the transcendental argument, like uh, Matt's been saying, is, you know, if God does not exist, then human rational faculties are not trustworthy instruments for acquiring knowledge. Like, only a world in which God exists do we have a reason to believe that our, our cognitive faculties actually arrive at truth. You know, the classical or some of additional subjection would say, well, maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe just our worldview is consistent. Right. I mean, so I'm just I'll be devil's advocate against just for sake of argument. You know, the the transcendental presuppositional approach can defend. And this is R.C. Sproul's point in the Bonson and R.C. Sproul debate. You can go find that on YouTube somewhere, I'm sure. But 
It's like, what, what if the whole bucket's leaky? What if, what if the entire idea is a consistent worldview that you can rationally show it's the best one we know about, but maybe the whole thing's wrong. You know, you have to ground it in reality and grounded in reality would be our faculties do arrive at truth. We, we do actually have access to true statements of the world. Therefore, God exists. Well, that's a classical argument. You know, I mean, you, you've actually moved into some kind of trying to ground your argument in, in the external world, not just within your noetic web of beliefs that, that something outside of yourself can be shown to be true. Whether that's right or not, you know, and again, I take more of a mediated position where I, I think what Matt was describing is kind of a pure, he's talked of network beliefs. Uh, Paul Helm calls it a, a noetic web of beliefs. So imagine a spider web. And so imagine like everything in the spider web must be consistent in order for that spider web to maintain its structure. And, and, you, and what's the most important is that center circle, right? And like God exists because God exists. I know that rational faculties actually arrive at truth because God exists. I know that morality must exist. There must, there, he, he is the, he is the grounding, the universal grounding for any moral statements. Um, I operate more in, in kind of a middle ground between the foundationalists and, and what I'll call the coherentist and a modest foundation. I'll say that much like Matt like, I won't call it a presupposition, but in a basic way without argument, I know because of the experience of the spirit, my reading of scripture, that the Bible is true and the Holy Spirit testifies in my heart that it's true. And I'm justified in believing that outside of any proper defeaters. And I'm also say that the average person in the pew is justified in maintaining a kind of a justified status of their belief, even if they can't necessarily make a perfect coherent argument. Because I would say 75% of the people, even in the PCA in the pews, classical, presuppositional, evidential, whatever we're talking about here, they can't make a consistent argument. You know, that just the Bible says it, I know it's true and I believe it. And I don't think they're irrational saying that. Like, I, I, I don't think that there's, they're, they're rational in continuing that belief outside of substantial objections. And ultimately the spirit will overcome any objection Right. But that doesn't mean that there isn't answers. Right. Because if what we believe to be true, any objection that comes to the Christian faith, whether we can figure it out in and of ourselves today, ultimately, in the ultimate reality, we know will work itself out as being a consistent set of affairs, state of affairs because God exists and therefore he has revealed truthfully his existence in the world. I mean, the the heavens declare the glory of God. They pour forth speech. They give us real understanding of the world. The problem with the unbeliever is they don't accept what they know to be true. They don't give thanks. They don't praise God in response to the knowledge that they have. Well, I certainly agree it's with that. Bad. I mean, Romans uh, 1, starting at verse 18, you know, that's that. And, and we know that. And I think that's how we, when we do our do apologetics, we need to do it with those truths in mind. And yeah. I think that's part of what I think is the appeal of the presuppositional approach. I'm not going to have an argument with you where we start with the assumption there is no God. I'm not going to do that because that would be a lie because it isn't true. Because God exists and you know he exists. And every every human being on this planet knows he exists because the law of God is written in their heart and their conscience tells them God exists. But they're in rebellion against God. As you say, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. 
And so I'm just, we're just not going to have that conversation. What we're going to do instead is we're going to expose your worldview and demonstrate that it's irrational and absurd. I, I think, so it's funny you say that because I, I have Romans 1 pulled up. I was ready to, to go right there because I think that is the verse that would, or the theological idea concept um, that would undergird why presuppositionalism uh, goes on the offense. Because things like anybody who's tried to do apologetics or just share their faith if they're if they're willing to with with unbelievers in an extended fashion knows the never-ending rabbit trail of the next question and if you watch guys like dawkins or i actually had a a richard dawkins style um i, I was in i was 30 years old and i had this a, a guy in his 50s and so i was gonna i would have said this old guy when i told the story but now i'm almost 50 so <laughs> but uh I mean, he, he was a computer programmer working for me, and he was a Richard Dawkins-type atheist, r very rabid. I mean, he, uh, and so I don't remember if he believed in an eternal universe or an oscillating universe or, or whatever it is, but, like, the idea that, like, the, the Kalam cosmological argument didn't, didn't matter to him. The idea that the, the law of causality didn't argue, didn't matter to him. So here's a guy who's standing on science, and he's he, he's going to affirm that there could be an infinite regress. I mean, it's absurd. It, 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 there has to be a beginning. And the idea that, or the willingness of people to embrace absurdity then becomes not a, a, an issue of not the right or enough information. It, it Romans 1 says it's an ethical problem. There's a suppression of that truth. And that's why people are going to believe what they want to believe. And you can tell them whatever you want about the proof. I mean, there's debates all the time. William Lane Craig has done 30 years of debates proving the resurrection. And, and he's never convinced one person he's debated out of probably a hundred or so uh, of his position. And so that doesn't mean I still don't uphold the historicity of the resurrection, but there must be something more going on. And what I appreciate about presuppositional apologetics is it is the one methodology that gets at trying to expose what's going on in the person's heart. And maybe maybe guys in other camps would uh, deny that. But, but basically, in, in showing how uh, a person and addressing their presuppositions are forced to stand on the things we take for granted that only can be developed from a Christian worldview, from the God of the Bible and, and the Bible of the triune God, is is to say this is, you're suppressing this. <laughs> this is a moral issue, you know, and getting at the heart of it. And so that's what really has convinced me. But, you know, Steve Cowan, when we had him, uh, Brandon, for that class, the guy who edited the Five Views book and, and assembled that group of apologists to write it, which was Frame and Craig and, and others, you know, like, like I say, like, I would tell him, like, well, Jesus was truth, is truth. He's speaking truth. He's doing miracles b before people. And what is his, what is his verdict? You do not believe. <laughs> it's like, so if the creator of the universe can give the best logical arguments and do miracles to back it up and people don't believe it's the, the problem is obviously not information and then steve would always push back on me and say yeah but some did believe didn't they and and that's where it's like and i think he would say god can use the right arguments the spirit can use whatever the spirit wants to use and and so it is almost like 
a bag of tricks where, you know, apologetics isn't a debate that you watch on TV or YouTube. You know, that's, we call that apologetics, but it's every day in the coffee shop when you're interacting with people and you meet them there, there's an entry point to it. And so I think it could take a variety of forms, but never forgetting, it's not going to be your, your great argument that convinced them. Yeah. George, just any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. Well, just pulling off what you just said, it, it, the basic problem is both sides, whatever it's like, Matthew, it's like, whichever view you want to use, be effective in sharing your faith and have a reason to, you know, just defend the hope that is in you. Very often we want apologetics to be more than it is. Like, like just our natural human heart, we want to defend our team and we want to make sure we sound rational and we want to sound like we're, we're, we're intellectually viable because of our faith. And, and, and it turns into no matter what we try to do because of our own sin, we turn it about if I do this real effectively, then I'm going to look good as I'm doing this, or I'm, I'm going to be more accepted as being a rational. It's that's just natural humanity. And, and all we need to do is try to, again, as I said before, we're trying to till up the soil and show the person that it's not as rationally crazy as you think it is. Matter of fact, it actually makes more sense of the world than whatever system of belief that you're operating on. And so maybe you should give the gospel a fair hearing. Like if I get to that point, like if I can get somebody that I'm in a conversation with to legitimately read scripture with me and, and say... I want to understand your perspective more Then I've done my job as an apologist. I, I don't have to do any more than that. I can trust the spirit to, you know, he's the one that's going to start, grow and finish the deal. And and sometimes we want kind of this perfect case, right. And, and just have it just be such this tight, rational system in order to prove. And at Matt, as Matt started, we're never going to argue somebody into the kingdom of God. It just can't happen. And if we try to make an argument do more than it's capable, then it's going to fail. You know, I'll give one example and then I'll shut up for a minute. But like Blaise Pascal, Pascal's wager, you know, he, he was a Catholic and, and he was like the, the and a mathematician. And he had this argument for why you should be a Christian or really why you should be Catholic. And it went something like this, that you should weigh the, if I'm right, look at all these heavenly rewards you get. And if I'm right, look at all this terrible stuff, hell and eternal damnation that that's going to come. So you're better off betting on Christianity because the worst thing is going to happen is you're going to have a fulfilling life and a happy marriage and, you know, well-behaved kids and a, a community of believers, a whole bunch of good things. You're only going to forego a few earthly pleasures. So the pain is very low and the promise is so great. You know, so so you might as well bet on Christian. Well, that's a terrible argument, right? That's not a reason to believe that God exists. But it's a pretty good argument on why you should at least consider the gospel. Like, like you're assuming that Christianity is wrong, but you probably haven't actually investigated it. You know, and, and so why don't you study? Like, I had one guy where I use this and just say, let's just read through Galatians. If I'm right, then it, uh, eternal rewards and, and heavenly eternal realities are offered to you and eternal damnation is going to face you be in your face. And if I'm wrong, you're going to waste six weeks of your life reading Galatians with me, you know, and you're going to at least understand ancient first century 
Greek culture a little bit and what was going on at the start of the church, you know. And by week three, he could articulate justification by faith alone and Christ alone perfectly. Just reading through Galatians and talking about what the text said, you know. Now, he ultimately didn't accept Christianity. He didn't, but he could articulate it and he gave it a fair hearing. And, he, and I, I removed some of the obstacles in his life through some argumentation. And I did my job. Right. I mean, I, I don't have to do more. I can't do more than that. That's the most. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, go ahead. I, yeah, so I, I think our congregants view that as failure, and that's why they don't take the step to do that. But it's not failure. That's that's the word of God isn't going to return void and, and it's in the Lord's hands. So you you were faithful in, in doing that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, if I've done uh, a debate there. and no one's changed their mind, if I did a, you know, I've done public debates in which I had where, where, where the person that was debating me kind of threw up the Abraham, you know, the, the, the moral absurdity of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in part of the debate. And he, he was hammering me on the immorality of that. And by answer, I was able to give a great gospel presentation that wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't superfluous. Or it hadn't. It didn't. It wasn't just like tacked on at the end of the debate that had nothing to do with the discussion. I answered his objection with the reality of the substitutionary atonement and and and, and the beauty of the gospel. And so there were a whole bunch of people there watching a debate, whether I was winning or losing. I don't really care. But they actually heard the gospel in the midst of that, and I'm trusting that the Spirit worked in somebody's life. I don't know. You know, either for mm. for blessing or curse. I mean, that's sometimes Matt, that's what we got to do. We, Matt, our goals you, are wrong half the time. Yeah, yeah. So, what, Matt, what are you hoping for in in as you train, like you said, high school students? I think that's awesome that you're training a youth yeah. in that. What is your uh, what are your hopes for it? What are your goals for it? Well, you know, I mean, and, and by the way, the, key in on anything. He, Brandon just said either. So yeah, and let me say first, I like, goal of apologetics, which is one of the first things I would teach. What are we trying to do, right? Well, we're commanded to do it, right? The Bible says, "Be prepared to make an answer." It doesn't say some guys do or pastors do or elders do. It says, you know, <laughs> all, all 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 believers need to be prepared to give an answer, right? And I think everyone can. So we start with that and say, well, when you find yourself in that conversation, and I, I think the the idea of the public debate is a little different because there you aren't necessarily trying to persuade the person you're debating. Right. It may be for the benefit of, of the listener or raise your cord later. And so I think rhetorically, you take a different approach there than you do in a one on one or small group setting. Right. So I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think both are valuable. Um, I'm primarily focused on that small group setting. Right. And, and that typically that opportunity arises, in my experience, largely based on relationship. You know, occasionally you may find yourself, and you can go watch videos on YouTube of people street preaching and yelling at people in the street with, with their presuppositionalism. Um, but I think it's much more effective. Somebody that you you so you work with, or someone who's coming to your church, or a family member, or whatever it is, somebody who you have you've got something to trade on, right? Because you you built some relational currency there that you can have an honest and sincere conversation. And what is my goal there? Well, my goal is to gently expose the irrationality and absurdity of your current worldview. And then hope that I have an opportunity to present the gospel and you'll actually listen to me, right? We're going to try to clear away the rubble so that you'll be receptive. And one thing that I, another reason I, I love the presuppositional approach is I start by listening to the other guy, 
right? Uh, frequently, we've all been in these conversations. You think about, you know, undergraduate days, you're sitting there, you know, yelling back and forth at somebody, and you're both trying to claim the floor, and both trying to spend, you know, say what you believe. Well, I don't, I'm not going to start by saying what I believe. I want you, sir, to tell me what you believe, right? This is just, just sort of, you know, basic Dale Carnegie, right? Talk, tell, talk about your favorite subject. Tell me about yourself, you know? And a conversation earlier this year that started with the, uh, the someone I know professionally, I want to be too specific, um, saying, well, you know, I don't need to... Um, believe in God to be a good person. Oh, really? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, this was like a talk guy. Like, oh, so what is the good? What does it mean to be a good person? Define that for me. And, and you know, within a few questions, we kind of got down to the fact that this individual did not have a consistent and coherent worldview and was absolutely trading on borrowed currency was walking around with a set of moral maxims and ethical assumptions based upon a religious system that the individual had been raised in, but now rejected. So in other words, it's just arbitrary. And, and I did that very gently over the course of like an hour. This was not, you know, I mean, I, I could have been, you know, just swinging away and ah, I got you. Instead, just very gently reasoned. And then at the end, had an opportunity to present the gospel and really got a hearing and said, well, and look, and you understand, you know, I know there's, People who think that Christian evangelism is about some kind of Marxist power flex or colonialism or whatever it is. But the reality is you have to, you know, I'm sure you understand now that if you believe to be true that which I believe to be true, then it would be wrong of me to not to present the gospel to you because of the eternal consequences. And I was able to score that point as, as well. But the key is, I mean, again, you can, you can use apologetics like, you know, like a bludgeon, but that's not our goal. So I think one of our goals is to actually convert people, right? Or at least set people up to be converted. It's a better, better way to say it. Um, but I also want to... Let, let, me, let me jump in. On just Let me just reflect on what you just said, because it connects back with what you said much earlier in the conversation about this is the, uh, the apologetic methodology for a postmodern world. And what you just described is exactly exactly that. It's, it's through relationship, through dialogue, through listening, and you're right in a postmodern context people don't want just facts to be thrown at them um and so i think i think you just modeled that well or in that in that example so yeah good um well and the other goal of course right is i want to prepare our people to deal with culture around them and culture that's increasingly pagan that rejects the truths of scripture um, and rejects the law of god um, and frankly for the most part rejects the transcendental entirely um, and I think I think it's pretty easy to demonstrate that without transcendental authority, there is no morality. Um, there isn't really any metaphysics um, or epistemology for that matter, right? It's all just theory. You can't know for sure. Whereas if I ground my worldview, and I think maybe Brandon and I differ a little bit because I don't. My my core belief isn't that God exists. My core belief is that the Bible is true. Now I know God exists because the Bible says so. But I but I but I start with the the, the truth of the Bible, and and if my if my network of beliefs beyond that aren't right. Right. If I've made an error in some you know, downstream belief, well, I can have an error in my downstream belief as long as I start with the Bible being true. You know, that, that's OK. Um, and that's why I, so I want I think every single person in the pew should be able to say, you know, the Bible is true. Anything that conflicts with the Bible is therefore not true. I can trust my reason because I know some things about me and some things about God that I get from the Bible. I know who God is, I know who I am, and I know what my relationship to God is, both before and after conversion. And from there, I can work out the rest of my life. What do you say to that, Brandon, the, the distinction between your starting point being God and, and no, well, Matt's my, being no, I have a whole Yeah, what I say is I have a, a 
bunch of sets of beliefs like god exists the bible is true these these are all these are not it, it's not linear in in any way i have yes. these you know and, and i wouldn't necessarily call them presuppositions i call them basic beliefs that, that, that i know these things to be self-evident unless <laughs> unless unless he, proven you really you really are planning a you really are no, drawing no, on planning no, on this no, whole, no, well, this whole discussion. Externalist, his idea is, is, is if this noetic functionality works, then it's true. And I'm an internalist. I think I actually have access to, you know, okay. my actual belief. And so that's where it makes me very different than Plantiga. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an internalist, but I do rely a lot on the reality of the census of Anatotis. I don't think we are tabula rasa. I don't think we were born blank slates. I think we were born imprinted with the image of God, right? In every, in, the reality is at some point the spirit works in the heart of the Christian to change them from one who's suppressing truth and unrighteousness to accepting that which they know to be true. Or C.S. Lewis says it's more like being reminded of something, right? It's not about learning something new. It's about reminded what you always known to be true, but you, you just couldn't see it, you know, and, and that's kind of how I focus is that's the nature of reality. So I don't. I'm different than so I I don't think I ever have to step out of the reality that the Bible is true to engage in argumentation. And and just to go on some of the things that Matt was saying, you know, I think it's always key for us to remember that we are tearing down arguments and strongholds that stand up against the knowledge of God. We're not trying to beat the person. You know, and that's where we get in Agreed. trouble, whether you're a presuppositionalist or a classical evidentialist, a plantiga, or, or whoever your favorite apologist is. It is far too easy to try to beat the person, to try to win the day, as opposed to really try to win the soul, you know, and, and, and really have it say, I, because I love you, I'm engaging in this conversation as opposed to, I, I hate you, you're my enemy, you know, and, and too many times we think of these people that we engage in in apologetics as seeing them as the enemy as opposed to a sheep without a shepherd, you know? And, and so that gets to, you know, the, the, that gentleness, that whimsomeness, you, you say it as a joke, but look, we're talking to imagers of God, no matter how much they reject Christianity or not, they, they, they still reflect whether how poorly the image of our creator, and we should see them with great value and worth, even if we hate everything that they stand for. And that's our biggest struggle in apologetics. It's not methodology. It's actually believing that. Hmm. Matt, you were you were typing something out. Also, you had some responses. I thought <laughs> no, but... no. I was just I was just looking at looking at a couple of notes I'd made. But no, I, I mean I agree with what Brandon just said. And uh, you know he alluded to Second uh, Corinthians ten. You know, we're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against Christ and taking every lot captive. And I, I, I actually like that as kind of like an apologetics theme verse more than First nice. Peter three fifteen. But um, you can't get around to First Peter three fifteen. But e e either way, I think we those those scriptures we need to you know ground ourselves in, and we certainly need to be gentle. I mean, I, I actually think that um, properly wielded the presuppositional apolog presuppositional apologetic approach is incredibly powerful, such that you can really destroy somebody with it. And so that's why I think gentleness is um, is absolutely uh, key, Arsh, because you you can absolutely well, dismantle somebody's worldview. Yeah. yeah, and especially in the hands of a, you know, cage stage Calvinist litigator, <laughs> it's uh, it, it become or litig. 
I, I'd like to think I'm past the cage stage. Maybe I'm not, but <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't implying you. I'm just saying, like, like it, it does go kind of hand in hand. Where in reformed circles, reformed theology itself, and then presuppositional uh, methodology can, you know, because th there is an intellectual side to this, and it could often be used as a bludgeon as opposed to the way you guys just described it. And so I think that's uh, I really love where this conversation has gone. Um. Where would um, what are some good resources would you say for? Well, let me let me take a step back. This is typically a ruling elder audience. So, what are some some thoughts you guys have for other ruling elders around the idea of of equipping the congregants for apologetics? Well, I was wondering I'll, if somebody would jump I'll in. Start. So go ahead. Go um, ahead. Yeah. So, my favorite resource is um, Greg Bonson recorded a series of lectures for incoming college students in 1991. It was a conference wow. he spoke at, and it's been preserved. It's on YouTube for free. It's a series of like four lectures that he gives where he talks about introduction to worldviews, the myth of neutrality, and how to, how to do the transcendental argument for God. Um, and, and it's actually, I started college in 1992. So this is almost like, you know, I wish I had seen it then it would have helped me. But if you look at the, the hairdos and the clothes on the kids, um, that's kind <laughs> of anachronistic at this point. But, um, but, you know, hearing him teach that in a very clear cogent way aimed at incoming undergraduates is really effective. And so I usually show those videos or at least one of them, you know, to the kids when I get a chance, they can hear it from somebody other than me. And I think that's a, watching that and take the notes on that is a great way to give yourself a crash course in how to do this effectively. Um, I, I like Bonson's book on Van Til a lot. Um, you could read a couple of the smaller Van Til books too, or I think are, are helpful. Uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, is not expressly presuppositional, but if you want some sort of practical wisdom on how to talk to people, I think it's helpful. One of the things he says that, um, to get to your point about what am I trying to achieve, is what he says, what you're trying to achieve is put a stone in the person's shoe. Right? I'm not expecting you to break down and have a conversion experience there sitting next to me on the airplane, but hopefully you'll walk away sort of, you know, in the back of your mind, start thinking, well, I've got a little doubt there. Maybe that's something I hadn't thought about before, right? And if I achieve that, then I've, I've achieved my goal for the conversation. So I like what he has to say there. He also has some, some good things to say just sort of about rhetoric generally and some sort of basic rhetorical approaches. So I think that's a helpful book for, for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, that's some things you might consider. Yeah, I, man, I, I like that analogy about the put the, put a stone in their shoe because I do think, again, there's this discouragement for I'm thinking congregants who have whatever kind of evangelistic or apologetic encounter with somebody and and they they walk away and they think they failed and especially if the person is is overly confident or arrogant but they don't realize even the most type A confident arrogant person still has doubts and insecurities and they may have put a pebble in their in in that person's Shoot, something to walk away that's going to irritate them enough for the spirit to, to work through. Brandon, what were you? What were some of well, your thoughts? As I he mean, was, yeah, there's lots of resources out there in which you can get the apologetic information. I I just found that you know, problem is you kind of have to just put yourself out there and actually try to do it because that's when you actually remember whatever tools you have in your toolbox. Like you, you were talking about earlier, George. That, that if people have a strong sense of the fact that nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand, nothing can take the sealing of the Spirit away from you, you need not fear not knowing the answer. So so the best training sometimes is just get, you know, even like the if you want presuppositional Pratt's little book too, it's a lot easier than the Bonson material just because it's 
you know, it's like a hundred page. Um, I can't remember what the name of the title is. Someone might look, look it up real easy. The, um, it's not every thought captive. It might be every thought captive. They're almost always the same kind of thing. You know, the Schaefer series, if you want <laughs> somebody that likes to talk about movies and that you just got to watch the visuals, but there's tons of resources. I mean, this is, you know, Amazon books and, and YouTube channels, learn those tools. But, you know, when I started getting into politics, I would start going to the Alabama Atheist Society meetings on Sunday nights and just listen to their arguments. Did I have, did they say anything that I could not answer? You know, because usually if you get confronted with a question that you have to go home and figure out a good answer to, guess what? That's the question that you always know the answer to the rest of your life. Like the, even if you're doing whatever methodology you're utilizing, don't let it just be a book knowledge thing. Don't, don't, don't just read the resources or whatever, but seek to go out there and get, it's good to get stumped, right? Because when you get asked a question, you don't know the answer to, and then you look, go back and study it. You're going to know that answer. You don't remember that answer the rest of your life, you know? Uh, so I just would encourage people more just to put it into practice. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like, you know, again, that goes my own experience of engaging. And this was before social media, those Amazon forums, they, like I said, don't right. exist anymore. And actually, the discussion was more civilized than it is now on social media. But it did, you know, but it, it you leave with questions that you research and it just strengthens your faith. And so apologetics has so many benefits for the believers just to do it, uh, to, to, to study it, to seek to answer questions. But really, it's about having those interactions in the community, in society. And honestly, ruling elders who are listening, it like my, like I, I used to do this all the time when I was, you know, I was a ruling elder and, and I wasn't always a pastor. And uh, most of my life, I wasn't a pastor. I'm 48. And so I loved sharing my faith. I mean, I wasn't like the guy to stand on a street corner and street preach, but like talking to people that I would meet at Starbucks or uh, whatever. But what I found is now that I'm in full-time pastoral ministry, my interactions in the quote unquote world have diminished greatly. Uh, you know, in the workplace, I used to do this, not while I'm working, but like with relationships that I have with employees and in, in different, uh, places. And you'd go out to dinner and you'd have conversation. And I don't, I don't have as many of those interactions anymore, but ruling elders, you, you guys do, you're in the world more, your life is lived in the world. And, um, so I think both these guys have given us some great encouragement in that and hopefully uh, a desire to want to pass that on to the congregation. Because I think in in my pastoral experience, most people don't share their faith because they're afraid to. They And, and, and the number one anecdotal thing that always comes up is, I'm not sure what to say. And, um, and I think, Matt, to your approach and even the little anecdote you gave, it, it just starts with listening. So... Uh, final thoughts from either of you on this. Matt? Well, George, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about it. This is something that I'm uh, I'm pretty passionate about, about get, equipping people to, to give an answer, particularly as we find ourselves in an increasingly uh, paganized culture. You know, I feel like in my lifetime, I'm about the same age you are, I'm 49, we've gone from a largely Christendom consensus culture where to one where now we're a, you know, we're, we're a minority, right? The, the, the antithesis has become abundantly clear, 
right? You're either a Christian or you're not. And if you're not, you probably have a worldview which is openly hostile to God and openly hostile to the claims of Scripture. Um, and so that we need to sharpen our, our tools a little bit and be and be ready to respond and be ready to give an answer in, in, a, in a winsome way because that's it's going to come up, right? And we want to want to equip our people to to do so because what the Lord has called us to do. Yeah, good, good word, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on, uh, Brandon. Yeah, well, I, again, I appreciate you having me on. I mean, you've had to put up with me long enough these last two years and wanted to listen to me ramble even more. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> look, we all know these basic truths. The gates of hell will not stand against the building up of the church. We have the Great Commission Amen. to reach the nations. And we look into the book of Revelation, we see that there's a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, so many that no one can count, right? That there's we are going to win the battle. So take encouragement of that and go ahead and be a soldier and know that, you know, sometimes you're going to get some wounds, you know, but actually you're going to come back stronger. You know, that, that that's going to equip you and a fear of not having the answer isn't the reason to actually really engage in that argument. I mean, so, you, you know, you go find out the questions. Like Matt said, you, any methodology you can you can listen to the people you still listen to uh one of my favorite stories i got a phone call and i'll just end with this real quick from a guy who was in the workplace none of the girls would date him this was back you know 20 years ago because he didn't go to church he grew up catholic but he wasn't practicing and everybody at his workplace were presbyterian all the girls went to a couple of different presbyterian church and he <laughs> called me and he's like brandon i want you to get together and talk the difference between catholicism and presbyterianism and I had known this guy for a few years. I knew his backstory. And so I was like, all right, meet me at the coffee shop. And so I went out to my bookshelf and I grabbed my biggest commentary on Vatican II, which is about, you know, 2000 page Catholic textbook I had. And then I grabbed the boss's commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it was like just that same size, you know, so I'm coming in with 2000 pages. We sit down at the coffee shop. I slam both of those books down on the table and I go, look, we can spend the next six years going through these two books, or we can deal with the fact that when your mother died, the church did nothing for you because that was his problem. It wasn't the intellectual problem, you know, that, that he left the church because hmm. the priest had no words when his mom died that were any level of comfort to him, you know, and that's what we talked about. All the apologetic methodologies that we might have are great, but make sure you don't look past the person. That's what I would like to make sure that people realize. That's awesome. That's awesome to leave on. I guess what I'll leave us on is I'm preaching through John uh, right now. And uh, a month or so ago, we were in John 5. And I was really taken back by John 5, 30 to 47. So Jesus is, is defending his ministry and his person and what he's teaching and doing. And he, he, he uses the words bear witness, testimony, testify, over and over, or witness to the fact, and he says, the, the Father bears witness about me, the Scriptures bear witness about me, John the Baptist bears witness about me, and my works bear witness about me. And when you when you look at that, and I, you know, I didn't do that in order and exactly what it is, but read that section and you'll see, and it's often called, I think, the fourfold testimony, or maybe people break it into three, because he says Moses testifies about me too. And... Um, it really, it really kind of encompasses a lot of the, a lot of the methods. He's using rational argumentation. He's using presuppositions of the scriptures and and the fact that the Father bears witness about me. I mean, he's presupposing the, 
that, that we can know that. Um, there's evidentialism in there with the works that he does, you know, and, and at the end of the day, people don't believe, but some do. <laughs> and so, you know, when, when we talk about being afraid, uh, you know, they, you know, Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Um, they didn't believe the way, the truth and the life standing right in front of them. Of course, they're not going to always believe us, but I think it's what you guys have shared just about sharing your life with people and entering in particularly like I always tell about the, the congregants, like you may not always have an open door, but if you're in people's lives, when crisis hits their life, th you'll be there and, and that that'll be the open door and they'll know you're there, you know? And so good word, guys. I love apologetics. I, uh, so Matt, I'm going to try to put a link in the, uh, in the show notes. I say that almost every episode and I always forget to. So, but with, with your, your, your own classes on this, uh, from your church, cause some people might want to learn pre-sup from you and uh, I'll put some other links in there, but I, I appreciate you brothers, you ruling elders, you churchmen, and uh, I look forward to our interactions always. So thanks a lot. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. Well, Brandon and I are back because what I wanted to do was just give Brandon an opportunity to tell us for a minute or two, just what's going on at Birmingham Theological seminary as i said we both are doing a d-min program there but brandon actually works there yeah i'm officially the director of distance education and technology the semester is starting when the tuesday after labor day yep, september 5th is the start of that fall semester and since this is a ruling elder podcast i just wanted to i'll just give them some highlights you know one of the things that we do at bts since covid a little bit before covid um we've really built up our video conference faculty and video conference options for folks. So you might be listening to this podcast thinking, well, I can't go to Birmingham Theological Seminary. That's on the other side of the country. Well, we've got a lot of great video conference classes, and I just want to highlight, if you go to bts.education and pull up current schedule and go down to video conference classes, you'll see a very interesting class that's probably of very big interest to most uh, ruling elders that might be listening to this podcast because we have a class on Presbyterian church polity taught by Dr. Fred Greco. I know that that might be really, I'm going to send in just for fun. But he's a yeah. PCA pastor, of course. He's also the moderator this year. And and those classes actually are, are they're master's level classes, right? Yes. So, so if you take uh, any of these classes, their credit, you know, it's a great way just to kind of get started. Besides the the ruling elder, uh, besides the the opportunity to take classes like that, you, uh, what programs does BTS offer in general? What, like, is it's an un undergrad degrees, master's degrees? No, yeah, yeah. Like, so, are, yeah. So, at Birmingham Theological Seminary, we don't have any undergraduate degrees. We do have certificates. Okay. So, if you're an elder or a churchman and you don't have an undergrad, you don't have a bachelor's degree, we have a number of certificate programs in which you can take fewer classes. You know, you kind of grade it on a on a different curve because you're in the certificate program. You're not expected to be able to complete master's level credit, um, but but you can go through and, and and take a get a certificate in apologetics or get a certificate in biblical counseling, even if you don't have a a bachelor's degree. But you do have to have a bachelor's degree in order to enter into the master's degree programs. So we have master's degree programs. We have um, biblical studies, we have pastoral leadership, we have biblical counseling, we have public theology. Um, and then we also have all of our D-men programs, which are, 
kicking off here in the fall with over 20, somewhere over 20, under 30 new DMN students starting this fall. So praise God. That's awesome. It, it, it is, it is, it is growing like crazy. And, and, and so what are the concentrations or tracks you can do in the DMN program at BTS? Yeah. In, in the DMN program, you, we, we've got these four broad tracks. One is the one that me and George are in, which is the DMN and apologetics, which is kind of a unique program. We have a DMN and biblical counseling you know, true biblical counseling, new stuff, and, and, and just traditional biblical counseling methodologies with all your professors in that program. Then we have pastoral leadership, which is probably your, your classic demon that you get in other seminaries, but, but we have a lot of, you know, practical ministry application, pastoral leadership. And then we have a, a church multiplication where, where if you're like a church planter, church revitalization, uh, somebody that's interested more in and seeing the kingdom of God built up through establishment of new churches, then then that's the program for you. Um, the current Alabama director of of church planning, you know, for our network, you know, he's in that demon program right now, uh, and so that one's growing as well. Yeah, and so one thing that distinguishes the demon program at BTS from from others is. A lot of the seminaries are going to toward um, intensives where you go for a week, and that is an, it's an awesome model, no complaints. But BTS's model is a cohort-based model where you you meet every Monday night, and of course, there, so there's three semesters a, a year, and there's a good month and a half between the semesters or something like that. But uh, basically, Monday nights you spend on on virtual calls with the professor and a group of I don't know eight to ten or twelve people. And, yeah. Yeah. And so if you're looking for a program where you get to build relationships, develop relationships and, and learn together and then get to really sort of challenge one another, encourage one another. And because you're, you're moving through the program in these cohorts, uh, uh, we, we love it. So Brandon and I are in a cohort together and we, we do our class. They're always Monday nights, but uh, you, you really develop good friendships and you you actually get great access to amazing faculty amazing professors so well great thanks for that so i this will air probably the week before labor day so it gives people have about a week to say hey i was thinking of taking some classes but you might want to jump in on that fred greck i man if, if i wasn't already busy with this program we're in i would be taking pca polity with fred greco i can tell you that